Well, hello there. This is the Pacific War Channel. I am Craig, and I am joined here yet again by my friend Ian. How are you? Hello there. Doing pretty well. And yourself? Pretty good. And by the title of this episode, there might be a lot of people in my audience who are a little bit confused. Uh, this is going to be on Tolkien's Legendarium. Uh, specifically, this is on the First Age on Elven Armies. Why is it such Ooh. a specific thing in such literature? For those who don't know, uh, I work for Kings and Generals. I'm a script writer and a narrator for their podcasts. Uh, but they also have secondary channels. One is Wizards and Warriors. So I was contacted by the guy who's managing that channel. And he had me write, uh, I think, about eight scripts about the economies of Middle-earth. And now I am doing the armies of, I think, every single faction possible in every age. And uh, yeah, as we are speaking, Ooh. I'm currently writing about Morgoth's armies. So I'm on script number four. Ooh, that's a deep dive. Yeah, that one's a lot different than the other ones, because so far, as we're going to be talking about today, the elven armies, I've done the armies of men in the first age, which is pretty interesting, and uh, dwarves, which in the first age, there's not a lot about dwarves, but there is some stuff. Uh, but well, they only pop out a few occasions, but yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, interesting. But the elves are kind of like, I would say the uh, the MVPs in the first age, and they're the ones that yeah. uh, the most is written about. They're they're like the main protagonists in the Silmarillion and that. Yeah, exactly. The humans come in a little later on. So, um, for anybody who's never read the Silmarillion, this is going to be pretty weird. And <laughs> just like the book itself, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's a very it's, difficult it's, read. It's a lot to take in. Like I, I know for myself, it took several re, uh, rereads to like truly understand what was going on. I kept mistaking uh, characters' names and like, uh, you know, like uh, thinking of like the first generation elves and like, wait, no, this guy, uh, he can't be there. He's dead. But it, it's just like one letter different in their name and like easy no, they, to get confused. Basically. They, they reuse names. There's a, and that know, too. <laughs> Boromir. There's a Boromir in the first age, for example, there's tons of reused names. It's a pretty big family tree. Yeah, exactly. For a lot of the characters. Now to kind of, please the audience members who have not read the Silmarillion, but maybe they're a little bit knowledgeable because they saw the, you know, the films by Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings. I'm going to try and explain this at the same time, who the hell we're talking about, because there's going to be a lot of different types of people and names and stuff. But the gist of it is before the third age, which is the Lord of the Rings, there are two mm -hmm. other ages. There's actually even going further back than that, but we're not going to dwell into that. So we got this kind of, New map, we'll call it, and it's uh, we'll, we'll keep it to Bellarand. So Bellarand is kind Bellarand. of Bellarand. Yeah, exactly. Bellarand. Yeah, it's the dominant original feature. Middle Earth. Yeah, we'll call it. Yeah, the original Middle Earth. And you have a bunch of races that emerge in the east of Bellarand, but then they venture over to it, and that's where they're going to kind of have their kingdoms and such. And the first people to awaken are the uh, the elves or the Eldar. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. 
Now, well, technically, it was the dwarves. Technically, the dwarves, but they were put back. Technically, yeah, I know that it's a fun conversation, but yeah, because the dwarves were never supposed to be created in the first place. Yeah, but uh, for the Eldar, basically, what ends up happening to them as soon as they wake up, they have a calling uh, to go over to Valinor, which is just like I guess you would, I guess we could call it heaven, for lack of better words. It's this mm. perfect place that has the different emerging Maybe lights. A, a garden of eden yeah hmm. you know because it's like they're heaven on earth yeah exactly and uh they're where, they're... The, where the chosen are supposed to live and be with i mean they're not really gods but be with their angels the the valar well, we, and the Maiar. for for like catholics and for christians you can think of the Maiar and the valor as like archangels and lesser angels yeah who live amongst uh the inhabitants of Arda, so of the world that this is all based in, but they live in Valinor and they call to the elves. And uh, this basically starts a process that's called the sundering of the elves. So the elves split up into groups. There are elves who do not even heed the calling and they're uh, the Avari. So they're what we would call the dark elves. And you kind of don't really hear anything about them. And they kind of just drift off into the East and Eventually, they will become something in later ages, but we aren't told much about them in the first age, that's for sure. Well, isn't it the, the Sindar elves, like, they stayed behind as well? Yeah. So the Sindar yeah, elves... Yeah, okay. So the Sindar do... and the Dark elves are, like, cousins. Yes, they are close cousins. The, Sin... the only thing that differentiates the Sindar elves is they heed the calling, uh, but they just give up. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we have three groups of elves that are going to be important for the story. Uh, the Vanyar are the ones we hear pretty much nothing about, mind you. Uh, they make it to Valinor, and they are the ones who will reside the closest to the lights in Valinor, which is going to change over time. And arguably, mm. they're the strongest faction of the elves because those who get closer to the light, which imbues them with power, well, that's them. The next runner-ups are the Noldor. Uh, they also make it to Valinor. And then uh, there is, for the Sindar, uh, there is one dominant king who goes there as an envoy and then comes back. And he is imbued with this light. And I guess he's one of the few of the Sindar who would uh, do so. There are Sindar who do make it over to Valinor, but you don't actually hear too much about them either. Yeah, uh, it's cool how um, they are affected by, uh, I guess, like the trees in the original light. And it's a... A good comparison, like, if you look at the capabilities of, like, Galadriel and, uh, um, Galadriel and Legolas, I mean, both are pretty cool characters, but, uh, Galadriel, Galadriel inherently has, like, magical powers in that, and mm -hmm. Legolas just has, like, physics-defying abilities, but <laughs> zero magic, and, uh, we're led to believe that it is because of the presence to the trees, the, like, the closest you are to the, I mean, well, the trees are originally the light uh yeah it imbues them with like special abilities and uh certain wisdoms and i just realized uh one little mistake uh the sindar are actually a subgroup of the tellery so the tellery were those who some of them do make it to valinor and they remain tellery but the ones who stay within Belarend, they remain sindar <laughs> and uh it gets even more confusing because those who stay uh, become Sindar, and then there was a subgroup called the Nandor, or they're also called the Lakendi, and then uh, their offspring, their descendants, become the Sylvian elves, so you know, like uh, Legolas and stuff. 
the Ethereum, the Falarim, and the Vithrum. And it gets so much more confusing after that. But basically, <laughs> there's a lot more Tellery. They're kind of a very large population. And they're the ones who, I guess you would say, stay in Middle-earth the longest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was something about, like, they, um, they're they fascinated by the moonlight and the stars yeah, exactly. and weren't as driven to go see the, uh, you know, the source of light. Like, uh, it, it carries on into uh, later ages, their fascination with stars and, and moonlight and a lot of their architecture is like based around it in their artwork. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, something that I don't think a lot of people know, and it's interesting, Tolkien, the way he liked to write, he loved to categorize people and give them defining characteristics that you just know that's them. And uh, when it comes to the elves, the type of weapons they preferred was that kind of characteristic. So honestly, when I was uh, beginning my whole process of writing this, which is unbelievably more difficult than writing actual history ironically enough <laughs> i have like i'd say maybe 12 tabs open in my google for different renditions of uh you know you have the silmarillion but you have different renditions of it and you also have older versions of it uh morgoth's ring for example unfinished tales uh general just notes from tolkien hundreds of manuscripts that oh, yeah. have been deciphered by christopher tolkien and uh, it makes it actually really frustrating because you, you can see when you read the oldest stuff Tolkien ever wrote, he changes his mind and you kind of just have to guess what he thinks is quote unquote canon by the end of it. And yeah, because not everything was intended to be published. He's just basically exactly. putting his ideas on paper and, you know, OK, this could be cool. This could be cool. For, for example, uh, we're talking about the Maiar. The Maiar is actually a, a more recent thing that he came up with. He didn't have a real name to place on these mythical angelic beings. So he refers to them as like spirits of people with soul. It, it, it gets very confusing in the beginning. And then he comes to this idea of Maiar. And it gets very messy because characters who go from Maiar to other beings, that whole thing changes when he comes up with that idea. Uh, Ungoliant is uh, a very confusing one because she could possibly be uh, a Maiar or she comes from literally a void. We don't know. Yeah, the, well, I mean, she's one of two characters that we got. Ungoliant and, um, oh, why is the name uh, slipping me? Uh, his Blue Boots. Uh, or his, uh, but yeah, Tom Bombadil, you know, two favorite characters that people are always talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... Yeah, there's so many theories about both of them, like Ungoliant, like, is she just, like, a manifestation of the Void, and is Tom Bombadil, like, a, a physical manifestation of uh, uh, Iluvatar, uh, uh, the main god, the creator? I, I kind of think Tom Bombadil is that, because mm. it, it makes so much sense in the greater scheme of things. Especially, and There's another theory, like... Uh, Bombadil's the opposite of Ungoliant. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, where Ungoliant wants to feed and destroy, uh, Tom Bombadil wants to uh, preserve. Exactly. So, like two physical manifestations of those two uh, concepts. And uh, seeing that the script I wrote is literally about armies, and uh, a lot of people who, people who know their Tolkien uh, legendarium would be like, well, there's not much you can say arguably there is stuff you could say within canon. And if you're willing to look at some scholars who have done some work on statistics, you could even figure out numbers. But mind you, this is scholarly work and definitely wouldn't be endorsed by Tolkien House, <laughs> I would imagine. 
But yeah. Uh, so of the, the races of the elves, uh, each had a preference for their types of weapon. So the Vanyar, they preferred spears. The Noldar, swords and shield. The Teleri, mm. bows. And there are subgroups, like I said. Uh, the Nandor are interesting because they preferred axes, which is not something you would think of of elves. You do not see that often. Yeah, axes are... Or read it often. Axes are used by numerous elf groups. Uh, it's just... You have to look for it in the Silmarillion. And, um, like, to start off, I guess we would talk about the Teleri. The Teleri are kind of the elves you hear about first in the Silmarillion because their leader, uh, King Thingol, he uh, establishes basically this kingdom in Doriath, which is... Um, I guess you could think of it as a, a large forest in kind of the middle of Belerand. And uh, King Thingol, he, uh, you have to imagine, so he comes into being, he, these, these elves don't necessarily even know that there's an evil presence, which is uh, Melkor, or at this time he's called Morgoth, who's in the north of the map. You can just think of him as this kind of evil guy that's in the north of the map, just creating orcs. This is a... Um... After he uh, kills uh, uh, Fanonor's father, I believe, and then was named Morgoth. Because originally he was Melkor. Yeah, he, he becomes name. Morgoth after the slaying of Fanonor. Yeah, this one. Yeah. And uh, when Fan, it's actually Fanor who gives him his name, uh, Morgoth. Uh, yeah. It's a little like to give it as the time that's everything's occurring. When he's destroying the two trees with Ungoliant. This is like at the exact same time the elves are emerging. So basically he had been imprisoned for a while. He gets out, destroys the trees, and then he flees back uh, over to his fortress. He has two fortresses in the northern parts of Belerand. Uh, the more important one for this story is Angband. There was another one, but it's actually kind of been destroyed by this point. And uh, the elves who are in Middle-earth don't really know of his presence. I mean, he will do things to mess around with them, but they're not being told yet of this incoming doom upon them. Mm. So you have uh, this new elven king. He actually does go... Uh, he, he, I guess you would call him like an honorarium guy who went to Valinor. It's kind of weird. Mm. But he is imbued with some of the light, and he forms a kingdom in Doriath. And... Um, Basically, the elves run into uh, the dwarves eventually. So the dwarves, uh, they do their own kind of like coming over from the east and they're going to settle on these mountainsides. There's two groups of them that are going to settle there. At, and yeah, at, at this point, has he met? Um, I don't know if they ever get married, but the the Maiar that uh, he falls in love with and she's oh, responsible yeah, for like a high. Yeah, she's like responsible for hiding the kingdom. She uses her powers to hide it from uh Morgoth's uh, view and, and such. Yeah, it's going to come up soon. Uh, I can't remember. Okay, it hasn't soon. happened yet. Oops, spoiler alert. Yeah. I don't know when he, I don't actually remember when he meets her, but yeah, that's going to come up and she's going to be a predominant reason why his kingdom even exists. But mm. um, so the Teleri, they, they emerge and they start trading with the dwarves. But when the dwarves come over from the east and um, especially the subgroups, the Lakandi, uh, who I also called the Nandor, when they come over, they bring news of, like, evil creatures being around. That there's something out there. So Thingol reacts to this by asking the dwarves to help arm his people. And let me... I want to get this right because I did have exact numbers on what was in his... Okay, yeah. 
So the dwarves of Belagos and Nogrod, these are the two great settlements in the hills. They uh, they help establish his capital, which is Menegroth. So the dwarves actually help construct his uh, his capital for his realm. And uh, they start to arm him and his people. And uh, the dwarves and the elves are the best smiths in the legendarium. And uh, the, oh, yeah. dwar- the dwarves make some of the best kind of armor, I'd say, whereas the elves probably make the best weapons, to summarize it brutally. Yeah, you see more of that in uh, the War of Wrath for sure when the dwarves are fighting uh, the dragons and such. Exactly. Uh, like like full armor pieces to survive dragon fire, or at least with, uh, weather it a little better. Yeah. And uh, so things that are forged are axes, spears, swords, tall helms, coats of bright mail, uh, linked mail, which the dwarves are the first to make, halberts, and um, that's it. Does it about it for what they make the elves because the elves um especially the tellery and the, the well the sindar and bellerind they aren't armed very well because they never went to valinor so they never basically they weren't imbued with all these ideas on how to craft these things like thingle can teach them somewhat and there is another dark elf called ale that helps them forge things but of all the groups they're kind of like the lesser ones when it comes to this yeah they're they're, they're kind of like uh wood elves so like yeah, they don't have exactly. grand majestic cities like they're they're living in trees like you can't yeah. really think of them having these giant prosperous industries and, and forages yeah and, and for example so they, they stick to their basics for example like the the subgroup the lakandi they they are what will become the green elves and they're kind of like, I would call them like the libertarian out in the rough forest <laughs> the kind. They use mm-hmm. axes. Uh, they don't really have m- much metalwork. So they're relying on bows and axes. They're kind of like Celtic people, I-, I guess you would call them. And uh, they like they get attacked. They don't know what to do. So they end up allying themselves to Thingol with the Sindar elves, just kind of as a means of you know mutual protection. And uh, on the other side... All the way near the sea is another group that emerge, and they're pretty interesting. They're led by uh, Kurdane, the shipwright. So these are elves that build ships in Balorand, because there are elves in Valinor who build their own ships as well. That's a different group. And uh, they're mariners, so they actually have, I would argue you'd call them like marines. They actually do amphibious warfare, like amphibious assaults. And um, I would... Also, if you were to think of them as a people, I would like call them like, like a Bronze Age Viking, basically. And they're uh, basic. They're they're to the west on the map, so they're always on the coast. Oh, kind of like uh, what was the the Greek uh, civilization? It was the um, the Ionians. Uh, before them, uh, not the Mycenaean, the the Minoans. Oh, the Minoans. That's kind of pretty. Yeah, they they were based off the the island of crete and yeah 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 you can think of that because this is like ancient ancient world token so it's yeah basically, it's ancient they were like 1100 bc something like that uh... yeah uh they also have mounted archers so uh, mounted archers exist in the uh, tolkien legendarium uh certain elves and they always seem to be in the northwest have mount- mounted archers and uh these guys uh are one of those you don't read about horses that often in similar and just thinking about that. No, you have to really pay attention to when they say they, yeah. he uses like there, there's heavy cavalry that are the sons of Fanor. That's in the northeast of Bellerinth later on in the history. Mm. There's a lot of mounted archers for both elves 
and arguably uh, men. But again, it's kind of like you're guessing men are doing it. It's weird how it's written. Uh, but for Thingol's people, so you have to imagine Thingol is in the middle of this map. He has a large group. We're calling them the Sindar. And he has two allies. So he has, um, um, they're, they're called the Falathrim. That's the Kurdane shipwright people to his left. And to his south right are these Nandor elves, like the green elves. So these are his allies. And technically... Yeah, that's dwarves. that little forest that's right beside his forest, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and technically and he, the dwarves. He gives them... He allows them to like create their domain there. It's basically almost how would you call it? Uh, like a fief. Yeah, yeah, a fiefdom. Yeah, and uh, a client state. So they're arming themselves in advance when they hear this stuff. And what what's happening is in Bellerend, wolves and orcs are basically encroaching, and um, it gets a little confusing what wolves are because wolves can mean literal wolves. It can mean orcs riding or wolves. Wards. Wargs don't really exist until the Third Age, but werewolves do exist. But we don't know much about werewolves. <laughs> werewolves and vampires, yeah, they're there. Yeah, the, yeah, vampires is even weirder because we just know there is a vampire who's a messenger of Sauron. And Sauron mm -hmm. at one point turns into a vampire. But other than that, we have no idea why they exist. It's just kind of an unknown. But... Um, so the Tellery and eventually um, the Noldor are going to come back to Middle-earth because they're in Valinor. And when they come back, they're going to mix with the Tellery, but that's kind of like later in history. But to kind of give like uh, an idea of warfare, uh, the first, it's actually literally just called the first battle of Elrond, by the way. It's not a good name for this one. The other battles have extravagant names, but for some reason, yeah. the first real engagement is just called the first battle. Well, it's kind of, you know, it's fitting because there's going to be many more battles to come. And this is oh, like the first crazy. battle of a long war spanning hundreds of years. So in the first battle, basically Morgoth's plan is he knows there's this large kingdom in the middle that's Thingol's and he can see that he has two allies. So Morgoth's like, easy, I'm going to separate and conquer, you know, divide and conquer. He sends two great hosts. And for those who, if you're willing, and I know it's kind of against, <laughs> it's kind of against God to talk about numbers in Tolkien's <laughs> Legendarium. But, um, there is a scholar who did a great article in the late 90s, and he used, uh, basically, he used statistics and what we had seen in our own history for army size. And he, every time Tolkien ever mentioned, like, fractions, like if he said, oh, this army was three times bigger than this one or this one or this one, he just tried to piece together how big these armies would be. And uh, I think if you go on the Wikipedia for some of these Tolkien things, it, there's a kind of a big chart as to how big these would would have been uh, mm -hmm. a, a great host would have been about possibly six like sixty thousand plus it could have been fifty thousand plus i mean this guy is kind yeah, of he's, he's guesstimating numbers but i i, I used it in the script because i just found it was interesting the amount of effort this scholar had gone through to try and figure out numbers and uh, i guess it gives you an idea because like the terms host Army, company, band are used by Tolkien, but he never gives like real numbers. And uh, so they basically, he sends these two great hosts and they're going on either side of Thingol's domains to cut him off from his two allies. So from the left and from the right. And uh, it really screws up Thingol's people. So Thingol, when he looks at what's going on, he rushes to the aid of his allies in the, uh, the Nandor elves who are ruled by Denethor, like you had said. 
an old Nothing. man. Not Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, wait, wasn't he uh, in Gondor? Like, exactly. How do you time travel? And uh, so the Lakendi, these Nandor elves, they, they just got axes and bows. They're like the weakest armed. They don't have armor. They're just libertarians living their life out in the woods, right? They get... Ron Swanson. Exactly. They get messed up. So <laughs> he comes to their aid like in the nick of time, but their leader, Denethor, he's surrounded and he's killed. And uh, Thingol basically, he just avenges them and he kills the orc formations and gets rid of them. The orcs that go to the left, they pretty much mess up the uh, the Falothrim and they push them to the ocean. So... These mariners basically get on their boats and they're being besieged. They're in a lot of trouble. But they'll be saved because it just so happens the Noldor elves, the sons of Fanor, push these elves to come over and it basically saves them. Uh, at the same time, when Thingol attacks these orcs that are hitting his allies, the orcs, they rout and they leave, but they run directly into the mountains where the dwarves are and the dwarves slaughter them completely. So this is one of the few moments you actually see the dwarves fight. In the first age, that is. And um, basically, the way to think about it, every time Morgoth does these things, he's dwindling their numbers, but Morgoth, it's never explained how he breeds these orcs, but they're abundant. He just you're, Yeah, you're, you're led to believe it's like, uh, not, not infinite, but much easier to replace his army and like the growth rate of orcs is apparently like super fast. Like, yeah. Yeah. He, he can replace armies in a matter of years rather than, you know, having to wait for an entire generation to grow up and, and whatnot. But um, this, this kind of war or battle, um, it was not at all something that the Sindar elves were prepared for. So the Sindar elves this entire time, they have something called March wardens. Basically they have, company-sized units that are going into their northern parts and they're just basically scouting the forest and picking off anybody who encroaches. So to think of them as like a, a fighting race, you can think of them like they're guerrilla warfare style guys. They, they don't go out and do, mm. you know, an actual uh, field battle, typically. They like to be on, they like smaller units, they like ambush, they like surprise. They're not very good in the open field. Uh, a good example of March Warriors, um wasn't like it wasn't present in uh in the books but in the movie in the two towers uh uh arrives at helm's deep uh oh jeez what's his name uh oh my god the elf um, guy that shows up yes uh he's one of my characters in uh the lord of the rings game uh i forget um, his name yeah the guy everyone uh, talks to um yeah his uh his title is march warden and when he shows up in the forest well, this is from the book when he's in the forest and uh, he pops like seemingly him and his uh, his company pop out of nowhere and surround the fellowship. Yeah. So that is because, you know, these people live literally forever. He would have probably been of the Sindar elves. If I don't know. Actually, I think that guy probably be an old or. But anyways, he, yeah, he could have been a March Warden during this time. And a lot um, of the groups are similar. No, uh, apparently glad in um, Lothlorien, it's uh most of the peoples there are uh, Celebrant? Uh, I was about to say Celeborn. I know that's not a... Um, uh, Galadriel's husband. Uh, isn't he of uh, the Sindar elves? Well, Galadriel is an Noldor. Her husband yeah, yeah, she's, is Sindar. She's, uh, she's like an Noldor princess. Uh, yeah. yeah, her husband's uh, 
uh, Sindar, uh, leader of their people, at one point. Uh, yeah, but, but after the first age, they all mix up, except for the Vanyar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Vanyar, I don't, they're like, they're weird. They just, they do not mix with anybody. They show up for one thing and they're gone. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, they, they stay in uh, Valinor, you yeah. know, and just sip their tea and watch events unfold elsewhere, you know. They're, they're literally they're isolationists. Called, they're like literally called the guys who are good at poems. So <laughs> basically, yeah, they're just doing poems. But um, to fast forward a little bit, the way I wrote the script was I did it per uh, group. So it's actually not in a coherent, uh, what do you call it, chronological order. But what ends up happening is you have to imagine Thingol's two allies, they've been beaten almost into submission. For example, the, uh, the Nandor we keep talking about, they get beaten so hard, they just seclude themselves and they don't even participate in any more wars. They, they like hide. And they'll eventually become the uh, the Green Elves, also called the Sylvian Elves. So you think of them like as Legolas's kind of people there. Uh, the Mariner people, they hold on and get saved later on by the Noldor. And they, they stick around actually for a long time. But they're a very small population and I guess they're just protected by their boats. Unfortunately for um, Thingol's people, uh, the, the Sindar, they have a falling out with the dwarves. And this kind of, I'd say this is what ends their domain. Uh, Ian, I'm not sure if you remember, basically the um, the dwarves come up with this beautiful necklace that they prize. Oh, yeah. Uh, is that the one that they made with the Silmaril? I know that yeah. becomes uh, uh, like a big event leading to the distrust between elves and, uh, exactly. and dwarves. Exactly. The, uh, the dwarves basically stole one of the Silmarils and made a piece of jewelry out of it, and the elves wanted it back. But that's exactly and it, it became like the first like uh, fight between the two. Many died. Yeah. So the elves, uh, the Silmarils, basically a Silmaril gets uh, stolen from Morgoth, and it's brought over to um, to Doriath, where it's put. Basically, the leader Thingol, he's like, "Oh, this is so beautiful!" Like. He wants the dwarves to come over and put the Silmaril in their prized best creation, which is this next. Yeah, and give it back. And the dwarves don't really understand the importance of the Silmarils. They've never seen the trees, and which the the Silmarils are made partly from. Yeah, it, it's like never from very, the from the light. It's a whole story. It's like never really explained, the but the light in the Silmarils is basically the same light as either the trees, the lamps, or uh, yeah. the sun and the moon in the future. There, and uh, the long story short, Thingol and the dwarves fight over just claiming it for themselves, and they end up killing uh, Thingol. And then the dwarves they leave, trying to get back to their um, their great cities. But they're burdened with all the loot because they had just basically pillaged Menegroth, the capital of Thingol. And they get ambushed by a bunch of elves and eventually Ents who kill them. And this basically is like, a, I guess, the moment where dwarves and elves don't trust each other anymore. Mind you, this is specifically the Sindar elves and the dwarves. The dwarves do kind of ally with the Noldor after this. It's, it's a little weird. <laughs> But uh, speaking of the Noldor, we can actually talk about the Noldor. So um, this whole time we're talking about all this crap. The Noldor have been in Valinor. Now, we had mentioned at the beginning, um, Morgoth, he destroys these trees and then he kills relatives of the most famous Noldor family, which is uh, Fanor, who mm -hmm. has a shit ton of sons, by the way. A lot. 
And uh, yeah, he's got like seven sons or something. Yeah, uh, seven. I think nine actually. I can't. Remember. I think it's nine. But uh, Galadriel Fair... says uh, granddaughter, or it's his niece. brother's uh, granddaughter. I think it's his niece. Yeah, it, it's Feanor's niece. So I think it's uh, uh, his father's brother's granddaughter. Yeah. yeah. So Feanor need that family tree. Fanor, he calls Melkor Morgoth, and then he makes this oath that he's going to get the Silmarils back and avenge uh, his kin. And this is basically a curse on everybody in his family that they all fall to, mind you. This And it, it starts a war, and something I don't think a lot of people know when they read the Silmarillion, the war is between specifically them, the Noldor, that he brings over to Belerend and Morgoth. It doesn't really include the other elves. The other elves do help. But this is yeah, it's an family. oath of that family, that yeah. clan. And uh, Feanor is arguably the most, well, he's definitely the most evil elf. Uh, he is an irredeemable character in the, in the Legendarium <laughs> and does a lot of horrible things, uh, include killing other elves to force his way across the sea uh, to get to Yeah, the, uh, you, you mentioned the uh, shipbuilding elves in Valinor. Uh... Yeah. Is it the they call that event the the elf slaying the kin slaying. slaying yeah the first kin slaying there's a few of them happen and uh, it's a horrible tragedy uh, the Noldor elves are much stronger than the elves that build the ships they overwhelm them and then they uh, they make their way over and the sons of Feanor and his sons they actually even abandon other Noldorian elves and they end up kind of creating their own kingdom and. It's it's a whole mess, but uh, to specifically talk about Fanar, when he emerges to the scene, there's an immediately in a battle, and it's called uh, the Battle of Daigar Nun Giliath, and uh, he's heavily heavily outnumbered, and he he's basically you have to imagine he's just sailed to this place and he's trying to build a camp, and before they even finish the camp, they're attacked, so he's taken by surprise. This is the worst circumstances for an army. And his force completely destroys Morgoth's force. Like, it's unbelievable. They're so imbued with this power, like this light steroid, that it's like, they just destroy them. <laughs> One side of it. Yeah. And this also saves those, uh, the mariners over in Belarand who just happen to be there. So they're pretty lucky that the Noldor just showed up. And uh, it's an overwhelming victory. It's pretty insane. And uh, because they're Noldor, you're just going to have to imagine they're like heavily clad in armor. They're using swords and shields and um, yeah, they overwhelm them. There's good. Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, pretty um, noteworthy uh, swords as well. Like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know a lot of them are like passed down to generations and definitely we see um, we see the first few pop up in The Hobbit, I believe. Yep, some of those swords that are talked about in The Hobbit, even Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like staying in that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this starts, uh, when the Noldor come over, they actually create their own little kingdoms. And this begins basically this whole war that's going to go on forever. Uh, there's another battle. It's the Battle of Aglareb. And Morgoth, he's being assailed on two fronts. Uh, basically, in the east of Belerin, some of the sons of Feanor have now created this new kingdom and they're attacking him. And in the west as well, where they're being helped by uh, Sindar elves. And uh, basically what ends up happening is Morgoth unleashes as much as he can against them. 
and they break into Angman a little bit, but then they're repelled. And uh, we see a situation where it's a siege for a long time. It's uh, the siege of Angband. And basically, um, everybody works together in Bellerin. This will include humans later to just surround this place and just, just to watch them. Yeah. But there were Noldor who show up that aren't uh, family members of Fandor. So you have like Fingon. And uh, he's going to have a realm in Hithlum, so that's uh, northwest of Bellerand. And uh, his realm is going to have I, Sindar refugees. I thought Fingon was um, his father's uh, his father's brother's son. Again, with like the confusion father's of names being so son. similar. Yeah, and, yeah, no, uh, that would make sense. His, his cousin, yeah, yeah. That would be his cousin, yeah. So you're right. They're all related in some way. It's, it's yeah. so many names. But uh, he creates his own kingdom, and he's like a mixed Noldar and Sindar people. And uh, he's using like only a fraction of his forces to just kind of like keep the siege going on. And uh, the Falathrim, so the uh, the Mariners who are in Bellerend, they actually help him as well, and they do amphibious assaults against the orcs. And uh, that's actually kind of cool because like um, there's really no other elf group that does this. They uh, they fight using boats. It's that's something you see with the Numenorians later. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, it's here where you get horseback archers. So the elves that encompass this Hithlum area, this mixture of Noldor and Sindar, they do have horseback archers, and uh, they do a lot of damage to um, not just Morgoth's orc forces, but um, Glaurung, the dragon. Before he even is a fully adult dragon, he just breaks out on his own for some reason, and he attacks. Well, he, uh, it, it's stated that he's like he's rebellious in his young age. You know, yeah. he's like a teenager dragon, and. He wants to prove his might and, you know, stroke fear into the world of elves, you know, let them know that uh, hey, I exist and I'm coming for you guys. But Morgoth was like, no, you're my secret weapon. I need you to get bigger. I'm saving you for later. You're like, you're my ace in the hole and kind of ruins that by going out early. But even in his infantile stage, he's just like dominates everyone. Yeah, that's never actually... come across anything like this. That's that's it, actually. Mor Morgoth is pissed off at him because he is that trump card that was supposed to be a secret. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's not uh, invulnerable to arrows, so the horseback archers actually beat the shit out of him. So he, he runs all the way back to Angman. Yeah, because he's still young, and it's like his scales haven't hardened to their, their max yet. Uh, exactly. Later, he will become essentially invulnerable. And then uh, we have other, and these are all happening at different times, mind you, but it's just the way I wrote the script. It's, it's hard. It's a little bit incoherent, but other groups of Noldor, f I guess you would say they find these kingdoms. So um, Finrod, Felagun, he finds Nath, uh, Nargothrond. It's hard to pronounce some of these places. And Nargothrond is one of the main elephant kingdoms in the story of the Silmarillion. And uh, they were inspired by uh, Thingol's Menegroth, the, his capital. So they kind of just mirror what he did. And um, basically, it's a hit. Almost all these elven kingdoms are hidden. That's kind of their strategy is just to hide from from uh, the forces of Morgoth. But um, a person shows. Well, yeah, up. that's the thing because as soon as they're uh, like located by Morgoth, he just overwhelms them with numbers before yeah, exactly. allies can come and reinforce them. And yeah, yeah. So basically, all these elves in Belerand, they have like these hidden kingdoms, or in the case of um, Thingol's. Uh, kingdom of Menegroth, he's protected literally by magic. It's um, Melian's girdle, they call it. So it's kind of yeah. you, you think of it, I guess, as like a force field, kind of like Stargate Atlantis style. If anyone, yeah, it's like it's reference. like a veil that shadows it. Yeah, 
Galadriel later uses something similar yes. to uh, I. Uh, she uses the ring to uh, uh, her uh, ring of power. She uses that to hide uh, Lothlorien from uh, Sauron's gaze. Exactly, it's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So all these kingdoms, they basically just they rely on secrecy, and then when they get discovered, they're they're completely screwed. Uh, so Nagarthrond is a, an amazing kingdom. They end up doing a lot in the in the stories, but a guy shows up, and uh, it's his name is Curifin. And he basically, he tells them of this vision he has of war and ruin that's going to come to them. And they get a little worried. And then later on in the, in the history, a very famous person, Turin, he basically persuades them to go into battle in the open field, which is something they aren't doing. They've been just, you know, he, ambushing. He's, the first, uh, he's like the first hero of the humans, right? Uh, Essentially. Well, there's two. He's, um, yeah, kind of. And there's going to be a lot of uh, like thrown into the mix like at this point like their their lifespan is uh, significantly shorter than the and elves all and, their like, names rhyme there's Turin and her yeah and horror and yeah it gets really confusing Baron, like, Baron, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I found reading the similarian was a lot of visual um uh family tree next to me just to re like remember like exactly. where everyone is like where do they fit into this story and when, when Turin persuades them to, like, fight out in the field, this really kind of screws them over in the end. So Turin, Turinbar, he becomes, like, a chief captain of their people. And uh, he doesn't like to ambush. He doesn't like the secrecy, you know, using secret arrows, all these things that they're doing. He's, like, a bravado guy who wants to go out on the battlefield. And, the um, pride of man. He, yeah, he, he builds a bridge for them so that they can easily go out and basically that will allow Morgoth's hosts to just easily attack his city and spells their doom. Uh, there's another great city, which is another famous guy, Turgon's Gondolin. This is another, oh, yeah. We hear about that often. Yeah, it's called the Hidden City. They're all hidden, mind you. It's ruled by Turgon and Gondolin is... But it's supposed to be like a prime majesty that to rival that, like a, a city in Valinor. Like, yeah. It's absolutely majestic and beautiful. Yeah, and it's a mix of Noldor and Sindar elves. Uh, it's got all the weapons you can imagine. They're heavily armed. Uh, the famous weapons that you would know, like Glaudring, Orchrist, and Sting, they're made in Gondolin. No. Yeah, well, no, uh, yeah. Well, I was just thinking, because uh, um, Gondolin is just uh, trying to remember where, like, you know, the white tree of uh, Gondor, like, goes back to Numenor. Yeah. Originally, I, like, I think it, uh, the first, like, tree of that lineage uh, began. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, that, that tree, I think but it was a seed that, that was, yeah. it, it was a seed that was brought over uh, from Valinor as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah and they they planted uh, they had planted it in abundance in Gondolin, so and that helped like you know add to the majesty of the uh, that city. Yeah, and this is something I don't think a lot of Tolkien scholars might know, but Tolkien had wrote a lot of things in his notes, and Gondolin has something very special. There's you you call them like guilds in Gondolin, and they're called the houses. There was twelve of them. And you might not notice them. It's just, you know, whenever you read Tolkien, he just has all these endless names of families and all this, and no <laughs> one takes notice. But the one thing that I found interesting is in the houses of Gondolin, you see specialization of weaponry. And these are elves, mind you. And what you find is there's a house called the House of Swallow, and there's a house of Heavenly Arch. And it says that they're the best bowmen. Okay. Then there's a house of Pillar, 
and a house of tower snow, it says they fought with iron-studded clubs or slings. It's like David and Goliath slings. Then there's a house of hammer of wrath, and they fought with maces and hammers. And these are elves. Cool. So again, Tolkien, you 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 think of elves, you think like you know a misconception is they don't eat meat. They did, and uh, that they don't use certain weapons. Yeah, they use pretty you, much everything. And you wouldn't think of them calling like their their guild hall like the House of Wrath. Like that, it doesn't <laughs> sound very elf like. No, not at all. And uh, another thing that's really interesting about uh, Gondolin is in one of the biggest wars that they have in Belarand, which is the Battle of Nirnath. Arnodiad, uh, Turgon, he leads the people, but for once, Tolkien gives us a number. So Gondolin comes out with an army specifically 10,000 strong. And on top of that, they perform an actual military formation. It's called the Phalanx of the Guard of the King. So here you kind of have a basis of a real military unit. So it's an, it says it's an army. It says they're 10,000. So you can actually build from that what an army means to Tolkien. He does like using that number often. Like in The Hobbit, um, the Battle oh, of yeah. the Five Armies, it was like each of them was like 10,000. Uh, you see that uh, in The Two Towers as well. He speaks of like the the host of Urukai or roughly 10,000. Exactly, uh, yeah. So yeah, that's a good basis for getting a number in the future for different armies and stuff. Yeah, so uh, whenever the YouTube episode comes out, because I know people will come after me about the numbers thing. Um, the scholar who went through this, he, he took like this exact number and he's like, okay, this was an army. What does a host mean? Because a host is bigger than an army. We know that in Tolkien's work. And he, he really tried to use statistics to try and figure out numbers. It, it was a, It's a very interest, interesting read. And I, I said it was Yeah, he, he's just like catching patterns of Tolkien yeah. and using that. Because when it comes to Tolkien, I'm going to admit, I'm a purist. I don't like touching non-canon. I, I don't like people making, you know, opinions or guesses and all that. And, like, I'm being forced to do this for Dang, the you don't like Amazon's rendition of <laughs> no Rings of Power? Uh, I just <laughs> yeah. heard so they, sorry lost, for bringing that up. they lost, what was it? Uh, they fired 50% of their staff or something recently. Um, <laughs> it goes without didn't, saying. Didn't Bezos' son tell him specifically don't screw it up because <laughs> his son loves lord of the rings too much it, you know and i'm sorry to say it was so easy not to screw that show up how how did you do it like come on yeah i, I, I really don't want to get into it because like we yeah, could rant we, for we, hours we, about it like so, this podcast so many youtubers so many youtubers already do it oh no no like if, if people you can go, go on my youtube channel go to kings and generals disc or whatever and if you really want to hear us rant about this we'll do it in another episode i'd love to because i hate that show but anyways but uh, so you get the phalanx of the guard of the king, uh, breaks the ranks of the orcs. They do very well. And what's well, cool before we move on, I do want to say one thing about the the rings of power. One thing I find they did very well is they gave us a visual of what Numenor looked like in all its grandeur. I think they did that well. Uh, Moria as well, seeing uh, yeah the the dwarven capital at, at its uh, in its prime, basically. The only thing is the armor. Of the Numenorians was like oh yeah super... that, that's like that's when you you're like okay you had a budget of this and this is what you put out but... yeah because like you know the thing is and I know we're, oh we're not supposed to compare it to you know Peter Jackson but like with the fun the two billion dollars that you got the yeah. the Numenorians are supposed to be the and this is the height of their man. power you know yeah, this is yeah. the height of man like you and the armor looked terrible I'm sorry it looked terrible yeah 
But, but they did well making uh, the capital of Numenor look like this grand city. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it was fine. Like the the landscapes looked great. Uh, the the design of the orcs, I was pretty impressed with. I said that's very different. It's kind of cool because these are more first age almost. Yeah, like, and they know. went then they did go back to using uh, prosthetics and costumes for yeah. the the orcs. Whereas, like in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, they just look so terrible because they were CGI uh, rendered, and it's like oh, yeah, yeah. as a as a you know Lord of the Rings films purist, like I, I found a little bit of a betrayal. Like, okay, like yeah, the we can tell, like, we can tell. No, it, it goes without saying. That's what made Peter Jackson's films like so amazing is the the set design and all that. It, the like, realism, like, yeah, it, you can't. That's like. It. 80s style horror using like real practical effects like 80s uh science fiction and horror when they're using exactly. real practical effects john carpenter's the thing will always remain like the top dog like you're not going to be practical effects with cgi yeah. it's just not happening back when they were like the the biggest thing in like horror and science fiction was like i believe it's called like lovecraftian uh yeah horror that was big in the late 80s yeah god we're old. Well, anyway, that's a that's a tangent. <laughs> but uh, actually, we're, we're, we're talk a, a little bit about Numenor. So the phalanx of the guard, which is found in Gondolin, in um, the, for the Numenorians, they adopt a, a phalanx, and they have specific names for their battle formation. It's called the Sansthan, and uh, it even has like an elf name, or specifically a Sindarian name, which is the Thangal, and it, it's it's a phalanx, for lack of better words. Uh, they also have another formation that's called the Durnath, which is a wedge formation that is basically used as a counterattack. Just to, you know, showcase that Tolkien does talk about battle formations, so there is some nuggets of information in his work to mm -hmm. uh, show how military is operated. So if, you, if you're going to take it at, at face value, you could say if the Numenorians are using like a phalanx formation, they probably, as men in the First Age, learned this from the elves that's what i yeah. would guess if i were to guess and uh the last faction that i talk about in my script which there's zero information i'm not gonna lie it's the vanyar and um yeah because they only pop uh, like show up at the end of the first stage for yeah. you know in the war of the wrath to come to the rescue you know like most of the fighting's already done it's like oh, okay yeah, they, they, they show up, like you said, it's called the War of Wrath. It's the great cataclysm battle where it, it rages for like 40 years. But they years. only show up at the, the urging of the, the Valar. Yes. So Elendil, you know, he comes over, he makes the whole spiel to them. And then they show up, it's called like the great host of the Valar or the host of the West. And it, it's like, you're talking about basically angels, eagles, all the elves, yeah, because there's plenty of Myers and Vilar that go over as well. Like this is, yeah. I was actually really hoping to see a bit of that in uh, Rings of Power. They showed it for a not. split second. A they split showed, split yeah, second. they showed the aftermath of like a, a battlefield, like just pure carnage, uh, eagles on fire. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's like, you know, that's what everyone wants, <laughs> but I, I don't know why they didn't do it. They have the money, but yeah. And you know they they fight, but at the same off. time they could have they could have easily have ruined it as well. Oh yeah, so that's probably best you know leave it to the imagination. But uh, but so, yeah, like the War of the Wrath, this is this massive cataclysmic battle, like for epic proportions. For, pe for people who don't know, this is like forty years of war, Balrogs, 
dragons, uh, dragons with wings, mind you, because yeah. before this, Morgoth had what he would call dragons without wings, but now he's unleashed like his newest creation, which is the winged dragons. And, uh, oh, and Galakan, my favorite. Yeah, the biggest one. And they're just wrecking everything, but the host of the West completely and utterly defeats them. And the Vanyar are these, you would say they're like these spear-wielding well, they, they all they, they could have lost if um, Angalican wasn't beaten by, um, uh, oh, jeez, what's his name? Uh, Elrond's dad. Uh, Elendil. Yeah, Elendil, yeah, you just yeah. mentioned him. Yeah, and... Uh, Coming back with a Silmarillion on his boat and having the eagles well, he, with them. And the it, grand, it took all that yeah. to bring the dragon. And uh, I, there's not much, like, even in the script, like, I had to, to, to write, like, there's not much to say about the Vanyar because you don't actually hear about the combat itself. So all you know is they specialize in spears. They're probably the strongest elves because they're the closest to the light. So when I was looking at mm. all the influences, because you see that there's a lot of phalanx, there's shield walls. You can see that there's Celtic yeah, at, people. At one point, I believe Tolkien um, mentions them as like the white elves. White. Yeah, yeah. But you, something like that. Uh, he says they're the lightest because they're within the light mm. the most. And uh, if, if you're trying to like pitch what these people all would have been like in our world. It's like, you can see the influences of ancient Greece, Macedonia, maybe like for the new Minorians, I'd say more Rome. But when it comes to the elves of the first age, if I had to pick somebody, the Vanyar could have maybe been perhaps something like Sparta. Cause they're mostly spear wielding. I imagine they're doing some kind of phalanx cause all the elves seem to do phalanx stuff. But uh, I think they're also, I don't know if it says that they're mounted. I know that they have white banners. I don't know if they're on cavalry when they're coming in. But y there's hmm. no information really on the Vanyar. That's the, the one unfortunate thing when I was doing this script. Yeah. For, for, the, for the later scripts I've already written, by the way, for, for men and for dwarves, it's a little bit more in-depth, I'd say. For the... A lot of, yeah, because majority of Tolkien's story, it does follow the, the passage of the Noldor. And then oh, as yeah. soon as they arrive, well, they return to Belrion, uh, Middle Earth. Like, not much is spoken of Valinor except for like the occasional uh, uh, journey there from like Elendil and. Uh, oh yeah, no. After the War and, of Wrath, uh, Valinor, you don't hear about it again until the uh, the evil king of Numenor tries to go over, and he just gets yeah. completely destroyed. But uh, but I mean, like in the Sil uh, Silmarillion as well, and. Uh, uh, I'm just going to keep calling it Silmarillion. I know there's uh, Unfinished Tales and all the manuscripts, but just to generalize all of it, I'm just going to say the Silmarillion. Uh, not much is spoken of Valinor because the focus is on what's going on in Middle-earth. Yeah, because the other thing that people have a hard time imagining is all of Tolkien's work is supposed to be t technically secondary sources. So the Silmarillion is your, you're hearing about it from elves who heard stories. So it's almost like hearing a reporter talk about it. Like uh, The Hobbit is Bilbo Baggins uh, and Lord of the Rings is kind of written by, uh, you know, men and elves who had experienced, mm -hmm. you know, the events. But the Silmarillion, it's like you, you he you're basically hearing it as if Elrond is telling you what happened, but he didn't exist yeah, at the very beginning. I, I forget which one it is. I think it's it's either the Lost Tale or the Unfinished uh, Tales. It's um, a human who washes up on an island near... Valinor or something like that and his uh um the host of the island the elves are just telling him tales and 
it's him writing the tales down and so it's like yeah, he's getting it from a primary source and we're getting it from a secondary source and neat how tolkien like um did it that way and uh, i mean tolkien is a wild character because uh he the way he changes his stories is in insane uh take the character of sauron Sauron originally started as a giant black cat called Tavildo, who was was Morgoth's, like, I don't know what you even call him. He was, like, his second in command, but he was, like, the manager of the black cats in the kitchen, and he would enslave people <laughs> like to name. make food. It's, like, really weird. So the story of Baron and Luthien is originally them with this nemesis, who's Tavildo, this evil cat. And the cat's nemesis, of course, is the dog. So it's Han. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's a cool fight. Yeah, so it was dogs and cats fighting. Like, you could see, like, that. And then, you know, Tolkien wrote of gnomes, but then they become dwarves and elves later. It, it gets really messy when you go into the old stuff. But, yeah, basically, if people are interested in learning about kind of the army stuff when it comes to Tolkien, and you're willing to go outside of the canon uh you can look up uh, here let me find the author's name tom loback oh tom loback he's also an artist by the way who who drew a lot of uh, tolkien's artwork in the late 90s uh he has an article called orc hosts armies and legions a demographic study it's probably one of the best things that i've read of the hundreds of things for writing all these episodes and uh it gives you just uh, an, an idea of like the the rankings of units and how big these mm -hmm. armies would have been. Because um, even when it comes, like, for example, right now I happen to be writing about Morgoth's armies. And something that I found incredible I didn't know about was orc chieftains. So the people that would be training and leading orcs could be uh, things called, uh, what are they called? Dull, bull, bulldogs. Bulldogs. And bulldogs were... Bulldogs. Yeah. yeah, bulldogs. There were Maiar <laughs> who were dressed up as orcs. Basically, they took the shape of orcs to train them. This is like a very early idea that Tolkien had. And um, technically, it, sh it seems like it's still canon. So there were orc leaders who literally just didn't die. They were these people, and they would just continuously show up in the centuries because they were Maiar and they're, uh, they're immortal. And that was a mm -hmm. weird one I had never heard of before, for sure. Well, often when it's uh, mentioned the Maiar that joined Melkor um, uh, in the beginning, like we hear of Sauron, that's one of his Maiar, his yeah. chief lieutenant. And then the other Maiar, they're most often mentioned as uh, Balrogs. But supposedly there were other Maiar that weren't technically Balrogs. And, yeah. Uh, so that, that's cool. I guess they would like fit into that uh, it, it, category there and such. Tolkien loved to keep things ambiguous, and it's just like you said, yeah. the Maiar are said to be seduced by Morgoth. So in his earliest, earliest writings, uh, there it does seem to insinuate that Ungoliant was a female Maiar who came over. Because the thing, the thing that makes you, um, the reason why we believe this, if you're reading it, is it says at some point that Ungoliant, before she becomes a, a spider, she basically just leaves Morgoth's camp. She doesn't believe in him anymore. And she goes off and then turns into a spider. So it leads you to believe that if she was around at the time that it says that she had to have been a Meyer, and this is kind of the guesswork you have to do. But all these people that join Morgoth in the very beginning, they're basically Meyer. And like you said, they 
you're you insinuate they all become balrogs but mm. it definitely seems that there's some that don't because sauron isn't a balrog Gothmog, he's a shapeshifter but he's not yeah you have gothmog who's a balrog sauron is yeah he's a shapeshifter he starts off he's either a necromancer he's a sorcerer he's a shapeshifter he turns into werewolves and vampires he kind of goes all over the place in these stories and uh gothmog is the chief balrog that leads the other balrogs who's kind of i guess you'd say sauron's equivalent they don't really ever mesh but yeah well, it is stated that Sauron is the chief lieutenant, but Gothmog is very, like, close to his level. Yeah. And there's all sorts of... Just because, like, Sauron, um, Melkor, uh, he puts more faith in Sauron because Sauron has the devious cunning intelligence needed as, you know, the, his second-in-command. Yeah, and uh, technically... Whereas Gothmog is, like, brute strength. The... Um, the fortress, the secondary fortress, was which is Angband, is Sauron's. So Sauron is in charge mm. of Angband because uh, it's Ulno, the 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 other fortress, the first one that Morgoth Melkor creates. That's his main fortress, but it, I guess it gets pretty screwed up in some of the wars. So he ends up using Angband later. But um, yeah, no, it, it's fascinating. Like the more and more I read of Tolkien's work, the more you appreciate his understanding of world history. And, of course, mm -hmm. his love for language, because it's all just language yeah. in the end for him. Like, clearly, he literally built all of this just to give space for, for why he's writing different languages. <laughs> well, he was a linguist uh, at heart. That was his um, yeah. his, uh, his his chief uh, pursuit in uh, academia was... Uh, You're uh... Here's a good way to finish off the episode. You you can appreciate this as a Quebecois. One of the funniest things about Tolkien. Tolkien was so obsessed with... I don't know if you want to call it anglo um He adhered to Germanic and Old English the most. So he loved yeah, he, Old he English. Yeah, he did find his inspiration in uh, uh, ancient languages and such. Yeah. He, he loved Old English. English and Germanic as a language, well, and Finnish and stuff, so much that when he was writing all of his works, he made absolutely sure, whenever possible, to never use a French word. <laughs> <laughs> he literally would not use the word, like, parents or anything. And if you look at everything he's ever written, he will try sure. so hard to use something that at least comes from, like, Old English or Germanic, so he doesn't use, like, the Romance languages. <laughs> So he's like, wow, I guess, oh, wow, that's a you, you could almost say very he, was, he was a language racist in some ways. <laughs> I was about to say, like, uh, linguist, but I'm mean, no, the, yes, he was, but that's there's nothing and, negative uh, about that. <laughs> oh, god, and then other, and you know, when, when people look at his works when it comes to the, the division of uh, portrayal of race and all that, like, yeah, he, he was a man of his time, but <laughs> it is what it is. So, that yeah, was, that's a whole. That's a whole topic, a whole nother topic, like the breakdown of uh, the humans, uh, essentially. Yeah. Like you could, you could, you could, I guess, uh, you know, find some similarities. Well, the rule of thumb is the more north and west you go, the lighter and apparently better they are to Tolkien. Mm. And the more southeast you go, the worse. Yeah, the Haradrim and the root. But uh, I will say one thing in Tolkien's defense. Because uh, I, I did write uh, a piece on the uh, the emergence of men in the uh, the first age. The Easterlings are always portrayed to be the evil guys. 
And it's said that they're either, they're different racial groups, like um, Sub-Saharan, African, Indian, Mongol, Asiatic and such, uh, Persian, mind you. But there is a good reason for that. In the first stage, uh, uh, they were in close proximity to Morgoth, and Morgoth promised them, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, aid and that, you know, provided them with uh, uh, means of industry and protection and such. But a lot such of alliance. Pe- a lot of people will point out the fact that, and I'll just I'll summarize them as all being Easternlings. Like there's different groups, but they're the evil people. But something that I never really thought about until recently, the Easternlings come into Bellarand after all the other like the houses of what you would call the good people, the good humans. And the Easternlings, there's two camps of them. There's two chieftains. Uh, it's Ulfang and Bjor. And they, um, Ulfang, he betrays uh, the allies, like the Alps and the humans, and he fights for Morgoth. But uh, the chieftain Bjor fights against Ulfang during the battle. And his descendants, it says in little nuggets of information, they were called the Faithful. And then they are redeemed being called Eden. So they're like what you would say, they are the good guys and their ancestors will become men of the North. So technically in Tolkien's work, the Easternlings, even parts of them do become quote unquote, the good guys just to defend Tolkien a little <laughs> bit. Cause like it is kind of undeniable. It's a little weird that everybody from the East and the South is just bad in his work. It's a little weird. I, I like to think it is just pure coincidence. Yeah. yeah. You could have swapped, you know, like, uh, Valinor being in the, or that you, you had a 50, 50 chance basically. Yeah. But, uh, stating all that, I mean, that was, uh, this weird episode and, uh, I'm going to see what happens on my Pacific war channel. Cause I'm sure this is going to come out of left field and we'll see if people want to hear about Lord of the Rings stuff. And if you do, please, you can find me over on the YouTube. You can leave a comment on any episode. Uh, you can email me. It's on my YouTube channel. I do have an email that people do find and ask weird questions. Uh, you can also go to my Discord. So just check out, uh, again, go to my YouTube. There's a link for my personal Discord. Or uh, if you want, you can catch me on the Kings and Generals Discords as well. I'm over there. I'm constantly answering questions. Uh, where else can they find me? Because the, the thing about podcasts is there's not any... Unlike YouTube, there's not a, a good place for comments or likes and stuff, so it's it's hard to gauge the audience. And above all else, I'd say uh, if you want to support me and further endeavors, you can go check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where I do exclusive Patreon podcasts, and those are built off of polls I do with, uh, I ask people what subjects I want to hear about, and um, yeah, that's that. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you're working on a, a video uh, uh a similar um, podcast on Morgoth's uh, composition. I gotta say, like that sounds super fascinating, just because like Morgoth has more uh, like diverse units to to pull from. You know, like he's got his Balrogs, his dragons, and it and took, such. Uh, it took me so long to get to a conclusion on one question. I was struggling so hard <laughs> as to <laughs> when orcs emerge and. If you go canonically, there's no answer. They just it is appear. hard to pull. It's hard to pull specific dates yeah. in the first age. Like, 
And uh, yeah, because, you know, I'm writing a script. It is for Kings and Generals. So I, I do everything professionally. And uh, I, it took a while. But other than that, it's, it's, it's actually it's more it's more interesting than the rest of them because uh, of Morgoth has siege weapons. He has literal army units that are trained like he they're in the writing it says they are trained by specific trainers it says what is the you not it doesn't give the numbers but it says there's different unit sizes it, it, it morgoth m- thinks more militarily i guess than the other factions so like you have a lot more to work with with that and he does have uh sauron as his chief lieutenant and sauron is like the chief Meyer of I forget the Valar's name, but he's the the smithy. Uh, he worked Valar, for Ella, you know? yeah. So the yeah. the the Anor who created the dwarfs, he uh, yeah. Sauron worked under him, so that's how he knows craft making and stuff. And I think his I think his Arnor name, his Meyer name was like Malorin, Malian, or something. You know, they all have these names yeah, he, before. He's the the Valar that helps uh, train Feanor how to. Uh, Make the Silmarils. And, uh, you know, they have the famous video games where he, he, he's making the rings with Kellen Brimbor and all that. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I like Shadow that. Shadow of Mortar. I like that. I like the game. Yeah, it was actually fun. But, uh, yes. Yeah, so it, it had a... Definitely don't take it as canon, but it is a, a fun one. No, I mean, having Shelob being this sexy... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, like, making the female version of... Like, female, like... Uh, human version of uh shelob it's kind of funny because interesting she she's like his she's like sauron's girlfriend and he just stops paying attention to her so she becomes an evil spider (laughs) doesn't make (laughs) sense but anyways uh gotta love it uh so yeah ian thanks so much for uh yeah pleasure it's been fun and uh we'll catch you guys next time this has been the pacific war channel over and out Hey you, you ever hear me talk about some great Pacific War movie or documentary like Pearl Harbor Minute by Minute over on Netflix and feel the urge to watch it for yourself? Uh Uh-oh, you live in Japan, and your Netflix doesn't have it? Must suck to be you. Sucks to be me right now! Oh wow, season 4 of Demon Slayer is out. Oh wait, I can't watch it on Canadian Netflix, but it's over on Japan Netflix? Whatever will I do? Oh no, no! Being blocked from regional content? With private internet access, you too can watch Demon Slayer Season 4 by switching your IP address to Japan. Yes! Hell yeah! Why stop with Japan? With private internet access, you can change your IP address to over 84 different countries and every single US state, giving you access to region-restricted content all over the world. Nice. Many websites and services like Netflix are only accessible depending on your physical location. But private internet access helps you overcome these restrictions. Think about it. Without private internet access, it's like paying for a TV series and missing out on the latest season. Shots fired, Demon Slayer on Canadian Netflix. Is that like a personal attack or something? Ever fear people are going to find your Google searches? Private internet access makes sure that those Google searches remain a buried secret as private internet access encrypts your internet access and has a no-logs policy. Think you're safe with the local coffee shop's free Wi-Fi? No, you are certainly not. Private internet access gives you more privacy features than any other software and real-time protection from malware and trackers. 
giving you peace of mind knowing those Google searches remain seen by you and you alone. Private Internet Access has a no-log policy that they've defended in court, which means they are not storing any of your browsing data. Hey, are you like me using different devices under one household? Private Internet Access is available on all platforms and protects an unlimited amount of devices at the same time. I personally use Private Internet Access to unblock movies and TV series from all across the globe, and I sleep easier writing scripts for my YouTube channel and others knowing my data is secure. Look, this is a no-brainer. Sign up with my link in the description of this video to get 83% off, plus 4 months for free, so it ends up being only around $2 per month. Signing up for Private Internet Access is risk-free. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, and 24-7 customer support is available. So don't forget to click www.piavpn.com slash the Pacific War channel and a big thanks to Private Internet Access for sponsoring this video.